Welcome to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. I'm Patty Vest. And I'm Mark Wood. This season on SageCast, we're talking with a variety of Pomona College faculty members about how they came to study what they study, teach what they teach, and love the field they love. Today, we're talking with Associate Professor of Mathematics, Gizem Karali, a firm believer that math and the humanities go hand in hand. Hi, Gizem. Thanks for joining us. Hi, thank you for having me here. Um, let's start with your emphasis on math and the liberal arts. Um, as a mathematician, why are you interested in bridging the perceived gap between uh, math and the liberal arts? Hmm. So if I want to go historical on this question, mathematics was one of the central liberal arts, mm -hmm. actually, yeah. to, if you start thinking about when people were talking about liberal arts, uh, mathematics was one of quite a few of the uh, quite a few of the uh, seven liberal arts. Um, yeah, I probably should have said humanities. Yes, the arts, humanities so. is also a bit different, right? So, uh, uh, but but even then, a lot of people today don't think mathematics is part of the liberal right. arts. Uh, for me, uh, they are very much related because what we do in mathematics is very much uh, connected to us being species, the human species, right? So it's our mathematics. The way we do it is different from how our machines do it. It's also somewhat different from how animals do it. And and so uh, I, I kind of am fascinated by how, how human mathematics is as an activity, even though oftentimes we hide it very well, mm -hmm. yeah? if that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it does. It does. <laughs> so which one came first to you, a love for math or a love for the humanities? Well, I always liked numbers, but I always loved words. Mm -hmm. So for me, I think at the time when I loved words, I didn't know the humanities. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, I loved reading and I loved playing with words myself mm -hmm. and making up patterns between them. So there was already a sort of a maybe a mathematical organization in what I was doing with words. But uh, and then math was always there because you start taking math when you're in like first grade mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and it was always like games and uh, there were rules that you would follow but then at some point they would tell you no 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 let's change the rules now and then it's a different game and that was also fun and but it wasn't always easy but it was it was always uh, stimulating so in high school when I had to choose a major that's when we did that's how it was done in Turkey when I was growing up uh, we I mean I just said okay I guess I'm a mathy student so I go into the math direction which um, meant that I mean I was always very excited in literature not as much as uh, not as much in history or philosophy <laughs> but mm -hmm. but literature was always very exciting to me but uh, the choice was kind of, well, you have to pick one or the other. <laughs> and and uh, my parents were both engineers, so I ended up going in the mathy direction. Got it. Uh, you've taught a, a number of first-year seminars, which are, yes. are writing-intensive classes yes. for, for first-year students. What, mm -hmm. what drew you to that uh, as a mathematician? Honestly, when I was first applying for this job, uh, in my uh, interview, job interview, they told me about these first year writing seminars. And I was, oh my goodness, I want this job. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I knew Pomona had great students and like the math department was cool and so on. But 
uh, I mean, I, I knew I wanted to teach uh, these kinds of critical inquiry writing, right? So, so they're not just you're teaching writing because it's not something that I know how to teach, actually. I know how to guide students through it as they learn <laughs> themselves. But, uh, but, but what was very exciting to me was the idea that uh, of critical inquiry on an open topic and mm -hmm. whatever that could be was your choice and th that was very exciting for me. The writing instruction sort of came with it uh, and then that, that, that wasn't something unwelcome though because I, I really like words as I have said before. Mm -hmm. So even though English is not my native language, I've read a lot more in English and I've written more in English at this point of my life. So I've also been a student of writing in English. So uh, I guess it, it made a good, good combination. I, I liked the whole package. You had some interesting ideas. I, I, just, I love your titles. <laughs> Thank you. I love picking titles. <laughs> yeah, I had a course on uh, math and zombies. So that was called Can Zombies Do Math? And then I had a course on education, basically philosophy of education, history of education. The central questions being what makes a good education and what's education good for. So that was called education and its discontents. And now I'm teaching a course on math and art. It's called Math Plus Art, A Secret Affair. So that's also fun. <laughs> so I, I like to pick titles. <laughs> so if we were audit, to audit that class, what would we learn, the math and art class? So the math and art class uh, is basically an exploration of how mathematical ideas have interacted with uh, the arts throughout the history of human civilization. The main textbook we use is very Western-centric, so we mainly learn how that interaction happens in Western civilization. Mm -hmm. But we try to sort of um, uh, bring a more global picture as much as we can throughout the semester. I mean, I, I try it. The students uh, help significantly. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, so that's kind of the main idea of the course. What artists do you, do you focus on? Um, so there are certain artists that uh, people would put forth when you're talking about mathematical art. For instance, Erdős, uh, not, not Erdős, uh, sorry, uh, Escher. Uh, MC Escher, Escher mm -hmm. is going to be one. Mathematicians love to put yeah. forth. The endless staircases yes. and things like yes. that. Yeah. And, and very uh, paradoxical drawings. Right. right? Like, so you go up, 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 and then you're where, where you started. And and then there are tessellations he, he makes where or he draws or in, engravings too, So which sort of start with fish and then they evolve into sort of continuously evolve into birds. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like interesting patterns like that. Uh, but uh, we have, uh, in the course, we have explored a lot of artists that wouldn't necessarily be um, um, obvious, uh, I think. Uh, I, I guess another obvious person would be Borges, right? Mm -hmm. uh, an, an author who has written a lot of uh, interesting stories which involve the notions of infinity or very large numbers, for instance. But we had some, um, let me see, um, less, less, like other names which were less uh, associated with mathematics, but I, I can't remember right now. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the book that we have used was very exhaustive. It, I mean, as I said, it, it focused on more Western mm -hmm. uh, art and Western uh, civilization, but uh, it was exhaustive in terms of uh, its art. Uh, not, I can't say exhaustive, but very comprehensive in terms of uh, mm -hmm. its coverage and very many different artists that I had never thought I would associate with math and art. And so I've learned a lot and, and I hope the students learned some mm -hmm. things.
Yeah. Yeah. Another course that you're teaching, I believe, this semester is mathematics, philosophy, and the real world. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that. Um, Well, I can tell you a bunch of things about it. The course (laughs) uh, was actually originally developed by uh, Judy Grabner. Mm -hmm. Uh, She was a professor of mathematics, uh, history of mathematics at Pitzer College. And uh, she has taught there for many years. She recently retired. But what she had done maybe a few maybe a decade or so earlier, probably ago, is to develop this course, uh, Math, Philosophy, and the Real World, where she would uh, encourage students who had typically not been very excited about mathematics, or maybe they were even like scared of mathematics, mm-hmm. uh, to engage with mathematical ideas that were central to um the rest of human civilization, and and so she picked for that uh, for that uh, exploration two ideas. One of them was um, probability statistics, ideas of uncertainty and chance, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, the second one was certainty <laughs> and and axiomatic thinking with Euclidean geometry and proofs and so on and so forth. So these are both quite central to. Uh, I mean, probability is uh, today <laughs> quite central to how we understand. Uh, uh, our universe. Uh, apparently, physicists tell us that's uh, how 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 the world is how the universe is functioning right through probabilistic systems. But um, and and the axiomatic system was quite central to how people thought. Uh, people thought, at least in the Western world, uh, saying that this is the prototype of uh, rational thought. So uh, Euclid's axiomatic development of geometry uh, was deemed to be the ultimate <laughs> way to get at uh, truth. And, and, and so she would explore some of the mathematics, but also she would also explore the philosophical underpinnings. And she's a historian, so she could provide the depth but I'm not a historian <laughs> right like and I, I, I couldn't teach the same class and and mm-hmm. so but, but what she did was this course was supposed to be a course between Pomona and Pitzer it was uh, supposed to be a joint course mm-hmm. but Pomona never really like picked up our part <laughs> mm-hmm. we didn't do our job uh, because she was doing such a great job mm-hmm. so it was always taught by Judy Grabner at Pitzer and then like I came uh, when I came to Pomona I uh, audited her course uh, and I loved it I also love Judy Grabner she's amazing she's if you ever talk to her uh, every time you talk to her you learn something and she's she's just amazing but so she at some point, I think, planted this idea in me that I should probably try teaching in the mm-hmm, course mm-hmm. as well. And I thought, okay, how would I do that? And and I said, okay, the two ideas are great, like the certainty and proof and truth uh, and the uncertainty and chance, also talking about statistics and data in our life today. It's pretty significant role. Sure. It plays pretty significant role. So I thought those are great, but I don't think I can spend a half semester on each of them. I'm not that. I, I, I'm also not a very... Maybe if you look at my CV or anything about me, you will see that I'm not a depth person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I like broader, mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe less uh, less deep, but uh, uh, approaches to things. And and so I wanted to add two more components to the course. So I have two more components. One of them is uh, on number sense and infinity, mm-hmm. which uh, we start with different number systems around the world. And also we talk about different number types that we talk about, like integers, uh, rational numbers, and so on, complex numbers, and so on. Uh, but also we talk about infinity, which is 
a fascinating, the paradoxical concept in many ways. There are so many interesting philosophical uh, paradoxes you can introduce mm -hmm. with it. And uh, mathematicians were able to access various components of that notion throughout the centuries. And so uh, we talk a little bit about the mathematics that interacts with infinity in that part. So that's one uh, additional component I added to the course. The second one is on symmetry and aesthetics. Mm. Uh, and uh, symmetry is how mathematicians typically choose to study what it means to be beautiful, right? So it's sort of, even though we, when we look at something very symmetric, we don't always think, oh, that's pretty. It's very it simple. But, but uh, a lot of times there is something uh, like... Um, some underlying symmetry and then some uh, sort of departure from that symmetry that makes something beautiful to our eyes, I think. So uh, so, so there is some uh, mathematical um, ideas that help uh, us access these notions of symmetry. But a second component of the, the, that, that module is on aesthetics and what does it mean for math to be beautiful? So I, I also mm. want us to talk a little bit about that because especially with uh, some of the students in the class who have been beaten on the head with, but math is beautiful, but math is useful. And, and they have never like <laughs> uh, seen the beauty, seen or like <laughs> born, they were never convinced. Sure. Uh, I try to share what mathematicians might think is beautiful and mm -hmm. what that might mean. Uh, there are many philosophers who think it's just mathematicians just going woo-woo about things that they like <laughs> and there's no real real there there. Right. But, but, but uh, there are philosophers who actually try to sort of also try to like capture that essence of what mathematicians think is beautiful. Um, so we talk a little bit about that too, hopefully. We'll see how this uh, installation of the course <laughs> will go. It's a fun class. Yeah. Sorry, I talk a lot. <laughs> No, no, I, I, I'm, I'm very interested in the, in your ideas of what, how math is beautiful. Mm. Um, how, why, how is it beautiful for you? Um, for me, some, a lot of times I like it if it, if it starts with a simple question. Or a simple question could be like simply stated, or it could be uh, you have a big theory and you're learning about it and you just have a very small, simple question attached to it. Oh, like what would happen if I did this? And then you dig in and it blows up into this like enormous mess. <laughs> and so there's that process of uh, going through that mess, uh, which is hard <laughs> and and uh, a lot of times painful. But then in the end, if you can sort of tidy it up into something nice again, I mean, so to understand that nice package, you might need to go through some of the pain. <laughs> mm -hmm. But but the, the fact that you could actually package something into something nice and tidy, uh, that that feels, somehow that feels right. <laughs> yeah, the word so, elegance is used yes, a lot with yes. math. Is so, that... so somehow, yeah, we, we, I think a lot of mathematicians think that uh, elegance has something to do with simplicity. Uh, but simplicity of... Um, so very complex stuff somehow becoming simple if you look at it from the right angle, kind of mm -hmm. uh, elegance. I, I, that, that's kind of how I'm interpreting it. Um, and, and sometimes there are solutions to problems which are elegant. There are sometimes there are elegant theorems. Uh, people think <laughs> there are elegant <laughs> theorems. Um, they, they have even like um, had a competition for the most beautiful equation, right? So there's supposed <laughs> to be this equation which puts together several of the uh, 
fundamental constants uh, in mathematics uh, called Euler's equation. And then, of course, math some mathematicians have to be sort of uh, contrarian. So they'll say, oh, no, that's just so simple. It's not really beautiful. And, but, but of course, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah. Mm -hmm. I think mathematicians, like any other group, are not monolithic. We're very... Um, Everybody is very opinionated. But uh, on average, I think mathematicians a lot of times think that there are some mathematics that is that, that's beautiful. So the beauty of math is also in the eye of the beholder. Yes, I think that's very true. I think that's very true. Yeah. Again, because it's human. Mm -hmm. yeah. Because we're human, our tastes are. Yeah. Speaking of human, you're the co-editor of the Journal of Humanistic Mathematics. Mm -hmm. Yes. How did that come about? Tell us about that. Do you really want to know the real story? Yes, that's why we're here. Um, okay, so I don't know. So you have told me that this uh, we might be able to cut off. <laughs> sure. So I'll tell you the real story, okay. and then you can decide how yeah. much of it you want. Of course, to of course. So uh, I had um, my first child in 2009. Mm -hmm. And uh, at least in my experience, when I had a new child, uh, because I had the second one later, and I, my experiences were similar, uh, there were times when uh, I would be awake in the middle of the night. Uh -huh. uh, there's no child needing me at that moment, but I can't go back to sleep. <laughs> I understand. I have four-month-old twins. Okay. Yeah. Oh, my goodness, twins. <laughs> I'm amazed that you can smile. and you <laughs> Fake it until I make it. It's my motto these days. <laughs> but amazing. It must be amazing from a distance. <laughs> Somebody else holds They're them. They're cute for a reason. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. Uh, so exactly when my daughter was about four months old, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, I was having this um, midnight surfing session online and I found this journal archive, uh, which was the archive of a journal which was called Humanistic Mathematics Network Journal. Mm -hmm. And this archive was hosted, I think, on one of the Harvey Mudd web pages at the time, because it turned out that there was a Harvey Mudd math professor called Al White who had come up with um, this idea of humanistic mathematics together with a bunch of colleagues and they had organized a conference in the 80s about uh, humanistic math which was a which was a phrase they coined mm -hmm. and I think uh, the people who came to that conference and the people who contributed to this um, ensuing conversation actually have two different understandings of what humanistic mathematics uh -huh. might mean half of them thought it meant like math is a humanistic discipline mm -hmm. so uh, the other half thought that we should teach math humanistically, meaning what they thought what that 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 meant was that we should we should teach their their phrases teach as if students mattered, hmm. <laughs> uh, because at the time the stereotype of a math math professor was one who would come up, stand up in the board or in front of the board, and, and like write for forty five minutes and then leave mm -hmm. without like interacting with the students. That's not very typical today, actually. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I think. Uh, that component of uh, the humanistic math movement uh, from the 80s, 90s has been successful. Uh, today, math instructors in most colleges and universities across the U.S. don't do that. <laughs> uh, but, but at the time, there were these people who were thinking about how do we teach uh, in a more student involved student centered way. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and the other component was like, how is mathematics like the humanities, uh, the disciplines. And and I think a lot of that... Uh, so so anyway, so this journal 
th- then he collected together a bunch of uh, documents from that first conference and then printed it. And then he said, oh, let's make this into a journal. So they just had this journal coming out uh, sporadically. So he was publishing it outside, like out of his garage. Harvey Mudd supported it very briefly, I think. Mm -hmm. But uh, the rest of it was basically really him running the show Mm -hmm. uh, together with some other people around the country. But uh, and then in 2002, he got ill. And so people, he he thought maybe other people could take over, but nobody really did because it was like so much one person running everything and nobody was as dedicated, I think. And then I thought, you know, oh, this is so liberal artsy. This Uh is so Claremont. Why are we letting this go? go? And let's do it again. And so I was not tenured. Mm-hmm. And so I found this and I wrote, I wrote to my math colleagues across the Claremont Colleges and I said, this is great. Let's let's revive this. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and 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 can we do this? And I said, like, I will help as much as I can. And they said, well, good luck. Uh, we will support you. But we're not <laughs> as, you, as long as you lead it. We'll yes, exactly. You. And I'm like, I'm not tenured. <laughs> <laughs> I should not be doing that kind of stuff because like it's against every recommendation a tenure track faculty gets that you should not jump into a big service project that before, <laughs> yeah. before you get all your publications yes. out <laughs> exactly yeah. mm-hmm. and so uh, well um so i got in uh, <laughs> 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 and then it became a significant component of uh, my scholarship as well so um, so it turned out to be a good idea yeah i mean it worked for me i don't know i don't necessarily think other people should start journals before they get tenure but it worked for me because also it's enriched my my professional life significantly so yeah so that's that's the real answer no, I, that the, that's the real story that's what we're here for okay no fake um, news here that's true there's no fake news so far so, so far i haven't done that yeah <laughs> Well, I have to take you back to can math, can zombies do math? Because mm, okay. you had me on zombies, um, <laughs> and I'm sure you had a lot of students on zombies. Yes. Um, tell us about that class. That class was a lot of fun to teach. So um, the the idea came from a student of mine, uh, Gabrielle Badi, who's who's actually a math major, and she was she was a brilliant math major. She's now graduated many years ago, but she was taking part in this humans versus zombies game. This mm-hmm. is a game that's a tag, like a play down campuses across the country. It was all the rage at the time. Right. And she was, I think the original zombie for that two years, which is like, she's the first infected person. She doesn't tell anybody. She goes around and infects people. And that's, mm-hmm. and she was very good at it. Like she was, she was great. Uh, and we were talking about this. She told me that like, this is what she's doing because they put all these weird makeup. <laughs> so I was, what's this about? And I'm really scared. I, I'm scared of all kinds of horror things. But zombies somehow, like, they're not scary. They're just weird. <laughs> like, I don't know. Uh, so I've watched several zombie movies, but uh-huh. you would never see me watch a horror movie. Yeah, yeah I'm with you. Yeah. But zombie movies are okay because they're just like strange. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, so she and I were talking, and she's a very good math major, right? Like, so we started talking, and I said, "Huh, I wonder if zombies could do math." And like, "Huh, that's an interesting question." And Why is so, it interesting? Yeah. What is what's interesting about that question for you? Uh, well, the quest, the the course basically evolved around the question because uh, it captures for me two big questions that I have been tackling for a while now. So. I mean, the central question I see as a question of the liberal arts is what makes us human? 
Mm. And and uh, I think uh, so the zombie part comes to like what makes us human versus these things that are so close to us. They were even us, but they're no longer like, but, but not us. Right. So what's this difference? And then uh, what part of that humanness contributes to our mathematics? So the, can zombies do math is basically those two questions come together uh, for me. That, that's mm -hmm. how I read that question. And. Um, so the so students, how much is yeah. math a, a human yes, process? Yes. Uh -huh. and, and, and the students, uh, as you have guessed, uh, you could have guessed, and I should have guessed too, They in both semesters I had uh, half zombie geeks and math geeks. <laughs> and like half of the class was there because of the zombies and half of it was there because of math. And, but it was it was fun, both semesters. I taught it for two semesters. It was, it was a fun class to teach and my students were pretty cool, yeah. Yeah. And they would say, could we get extra credit for like joining the zombies, humans versus zombies game? I'm like, uh. <laughs> they didn't. But they, they told us about their experiences that was uh, that contributed to our conversations. Really? Uh, let's uh, pivot a little bit to the humanities studio oh, and cool. your involvement mm -hmm. there. You're yes. the, one of the inaugural faculty fellows. For yes. it. Can you tell mm -hmm. us what you're working on for the humanities studio? Um, so this year's uh, programming is around the notion of failure. Um, and um, what the proposal I wrote uh, says that I fail a lot, which <laughs> I do, uh, but um, uh, I also thought that uh, mathematicians uh, are a lot of are people who get used to failing and then keep going because uh, it's pretty hard to solve a problem which hasn't been solved try. before. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and, and yeah, so, so, so you make mistakes, right? You make mistakes, you fail for a long time until you don't fail. Right? <laughs> so that's kind of how you do math. Um, except, of course, I had a professor in grad school whose motto was that I look at a problem for five minutes and if I can't imagine the solution, then I move on. Uh, I mean, <laughs> so he was a genius, apparently. <laughs> so, but there are, there, I, I mean, I've come to realize that there are geniuses. Mm -hmm. yeah. But, but, uh, but one doesn't have to be a genius <laughs> to, uh, be a to be a mathematician. Mm -hmm. So uh, otherwise, like I'd be out of a job. <laughs> so and a lot of other people would too. So, but well, that's also geniuses, sort of a yeah. shame that he that he says that because <laughs> if he's really a genius, then you'd like him to tackle things that he couldn't solve in five minutes. But of course, the things that he can solve in five minutes are still pretty groundbreaking. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, you're right. If if he had actually dedicated his uh, mental <laughs> capacity to other things, but but still, I mean, he's still pretty yeah. well known and well established, yeah. and his uh, yeah. But he can back out that sentence yeah i think i, I think i think he's fine <laughs> but but it was of course as you have said not a very good uh, recommendation for grad <laughs> students <laughs> it's it's not very accurate uh, for for most mathematicians but so we fail a lot i think and 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 i wanted to think about uh failed mathematicians versus like when is a when is some uh, so so there's a there's a um there's several uh, well-told stories of mathematicians who have uh, either just um, like struggled through years and so on and so forth and they were never understood. So, so there are the misunderstood genius mm -hmm. pictures, right? So there are those stories in mathematics as well. And, and to me, it was interesting because uh, we claim that math is about truth, right? Mm -hmm. So if you have a truth like then if you get to a truth, then you're done, right? Like, why is that a failure, <laughs> right? right? Yeah. But but there are fashions, there are other people, how, how they understand you and, and your work. And, and so it takes some time for certain types of truths to be valued, right? And, and so, for instance, this mathematician, Hamilton, 
uh, he spent decades of his life developing the, the theory of quaternions, mm -hmm. which uh, people in his time thought was such a waste of his genius because he was actually brilliant, but he spent all his time on this useless mathematics mm -hmm. and today it's actually useful <laughs> but but like then he probably died not being appreciated right like he, he he knew people thought he was a good mathematician but what he did what his masterpiece was mm -hmm. not valued and and uh it, it is an interesting thing so i i wanted to think a little mm -hmm. bit about these uh along with my colleagues who were thinking about failure in totally different domains sure. and it's been a very stimulating semester so far last last semester we're starting uh, this friday so looking forward to it uh, what happened was along the way i've started looking at other uh, other things i was reading i have been reading a lot about ada lovelace ada lovelace maybe you have heard is um today deemed to be the first computer programmer, the first person who ever wrote a computer program. And uh, I've been reading a lot about her life because my daughter was interested in her, but also because it seemed like she's a very interesting character. And when I was uh, so obsessed with thinking about failure, I realized she's one of those failed geniuses and we don't actually have that many female failed geniuses. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it was it was a very interesting uh, case study to, mm -hmm. to think about Ada Lovelace uh, in this in this perspective that she failed because what she had been trying to do, uh, they were trying to build a computer before electricity. <laughs> like they, they were doing it with like mechanics, mechanical things. And, uh -huh. and that didn't necessarily lead to today's computers. So what they did died with them in a way. But then a century after her death, Alan Turing, who was one of the, who's today known as one of the fathers of computer science, did cite back to, did refer back to one of her writings and oh. said, and, and like propelled her back into the conversation, which was very nice, right? very interesting. So she, she wrote about how the computer, of course, they didn't call it the computer then, but the computer could not really have original thoughts. It could only do things that we told it to do. And uh, Alan Turing was sort of saying, this is Lady Lovelace's argument uh, and I, I'm against it because like, what do you mean by original thought? <laughs> and how does our brain actually create original thought? So, so she, he complicates that uh, quote a lot uh, after that. But I think uh, when he wrote Lady Lovelace in his paper was when people said, oh, let's look at this. Who's mm -hmm. this? Because for 100 years, people had not really thought much about her. So, so she's she's a good failure, good example of a failure. Though she probably was happy throughout all her life. She was a very, um, yeah, uh, she had many interests. Okay. Um, yeah, so does that help so another, make sense? Yeah, no, that makes sense. And that's another case of what they were working on. It was just probably before their time, and now it's appreciated yeah, more. Exactly, exactly. Uh, and and there, are, there are conversations about how she was, uh, some people thought that her contribution was not significant it was all her the male partner Charles Babbage who was the designer of the computer uh, and and she couldn't have done that uh, because she didn't know enough mathematics there were all these conversations and just very recently this this 2018 this past year they historians have published a book where they actually argue that no yes she could have done it she did have the mathematical abilities she did so it's 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 uh, people are still arguing about what precisely was her contribution. contribution yeah so it's it's interesting to see that as well um let's talk about math education i okay. know you have some very strong opinions about <laughs> about that and um you've written about the preconceived notions that people that people bring mm -hmm. 
about math that they pick up as children mm -hmm. in school. Um, and um, can you explain your argument on that? Um, so I wrote this uh, little piece for <laughs> the Pomona magazine saying, what if K-12 K mathematics were not required? Now, I was tongue-in-cheek. I don't actually think math should not be required. Uh, uh, but um, the way we teach it uh, in most uh, contexts seems to be uh, very much uh, sort of straight-jacketed into sort of like... Um, here are the things you can learn. Here are the questions you can ask. Here are the ways you can answer these questions. And uh, it's very um, contained. Rigid. Um, rigid. Did, yes, rigid. And and uh, when I was uh, first thinking about mathematics education, we this happened with uh, Stacy Brown, uh, was a visiting professor at Pitzer College for, for a brief period of time in my first few years in Pomona. She was a math education researcher, and now she's at uh, Cal State Pomona. Uh, she, she, Cal Poly Pomona, she's, she's pretty close. So we didn't totally lose her, but she was on campus like she was in Claremont at the time. And she gave a colloquium talk and that was amazing. So she was talking about these very simple elementary mathematical concepts about uh, if you subtract a negative number, it's like the adding of a positive number. Or if you multiply two negative numbers, you get a positive, you know, like mm -hmm. th those simple rules that we sort of uh, at some point memorize. Uh, and and she was trying to get us to think about how they're not really easy. <laughs> and like and 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 a lot of times uh, those kids who are who accept these rules and uh, can can move on, but the the child who asks, but why? <laughs> mm -hmm. right? is uh, oftentimes going to meet a teacher who says, because I said so or because that's the rule or because the teacher is not always ready to answer such questions. And she was uh, so Stacy was speaking to a whole group of mathematicians, and she was asking us, "So why? How would you explain? How would you explain mm -hmm. this to a nine-year-old?" And we were all stumped. We were like, "Because <laughs> but, that's but, but, the way it is." Yes, <laughs> and, and and so that that moment uh, came to me to re when I realized that I was good at math most of my educational career, almost all of it. Yes, uh, I mean, I, I, as I said, I do fail occasionally, but like never till the end. Like I eventually figure things out. I am. A good test taker and so on and so forth, but but there are all these other students throughout my education. I have seen ask all these questions uh, where I wasn't asking the questions. I was just saying, okay, I guess this is the rule, and I will follow, right? <laughs> and 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 then I realized that those students who were asking the questions were not being served by the system at all, and 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 that's sad, <laughs> mm -hmm. right? Because those questions are actually very valuable. I mean, they they have reasonable answers, and. And the questions, the children who ask those questions should be like celebrated because like those are actually really good questions. Uh, for instance, um, uh, a colleague of mine, we published in the Journal of Humanistic Mathematics, he writes about how uh, the idea of negative numbers and then the idea of complex numbers, imaginary numbers, these were very complicated ideas. They're still complicated ideas and they were very hard for mathematicians themselves to accept mm -hmm. for centuries. Mm. Uh, like in 1830s, uh, one of my mathematical heroes, Augustus de Morgan, writes a book about elementary mathematics trying to teach this is his public service idea uh, of teaching people mathematics. And, and he writes in, the, in that book something to the effect of, like, it's amazing to me how the idea of negative numbers, which are so, like, senseless, so ridiculous, have caught on while more reasonable ideas such as astrology 
have have just uh, dropped off the face of the earth. So, like, <laughs> here's a great mathematician who admits that even negative numbers are a complicated concept. And mm -hmm. today we just have for accept students to it. accept that and mm -hmm. move on, right? And we're, we're packing so much and all these questions are like swept to the side and the students who ask them are like uh, sort of outcasts and, and that doesn't work very well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, so, so that's kind of some mm -hmm. ideas, some, some way of answering, partially answering your yeah. question. Does that help? <laughs> yes, it does. I, and you've also sort of related that to the fact that so many people grow up hating math. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And um, is there a solution for that? Is That's a very good question. My guess is that the solution is not necessarily about the teachers, but it's political. Uh, we need smaller classrooms. We need better paid teachers. We need happier teachers. We need ha healthier mm -hmm. and better fed children, <laughs> right? Uh, I mean, it's it's when you put a bunch of uh, eight-year-olds into a classroom and give them toys to play with, the math will come out of it. But we don't have the time. We don't have the space. We don't have the resources. And mm -hmm. and and the teachers don't have the time because they're being forced to improve test scores and all of that. So. Uh, given the political climate, I don't know. Uh, we're like putting band-aids here and there and trying to, I mean, for instance, the common core state standards, there's a big political fight about it. But uh, if you ask most mathematicians that I know of, at least, uh, the, the standards themselves are pretty solid. They're beautiful. They're, I mean, we, we think these are great. And I've, I've actually seen my, my children at school learning uh, with this new standard-based uh, materials. And, uh, and, and I, I can see how attractive they are to at least a mathematical thinker. And the, ch the children don't have additional extra difficulties because they don't know any other ways, right. right? So it's hard for the parents, of course, but because they haven't learned this way. But what Common Core State Standards now try to do, at least in math, is that show students there are many ways to equate to a solution, right? So this is, this is one of the, I think, philosophical differences between back to basics versus common core, those kinds of ideas, where mathematics is not a one-way to all correct answers mm -hmm. uh, path. I mean, there are many paths to correct answers. And one of the things I find interesting in uh, common core materials uh, is that, for instance, they will have um, questions where there are multiple answers. And so the child will start not looking for one correct answer and be done, but looking through all a bunch of proposed answers and thinking, is this working? Is this working? Maybe a bunch of them work at the same time. And so these are, I think, more like encouraging more flexible ways of thinking about mathematics, but also flexible ways of thinking, period, right? Like, uh, yeah, exactly. And and so they're, they're very exciting. But how do you do this when you haven't trained the teachers, when you haven't uh, given the teachers the tools to actually use it in the class? I mean, it's, it's a political situation there. Right, and we have 35 <laughs> kids in a classroom. Yes, or more. Or right? more. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes. I mean, so all of those uh, test scores that the U.S. like performs so much poorly in comparison to all these other schools, like Finland is amazing. Yes, but like Finland's uh, average child gets fed at home <laughs> and and they they well fed at home and finland's average teachers get paid better i mean so it's not the teachers are not doing something bad in the us versus other places it's just the, they're not given the tools and the children are often uh, not allowed the chance to learn
I think. So it's a political situation. So I don't know. We try. The mathematicians and math education researchers, we try our best. But it's not all. I mean, I think the people need to decide um, if they value public education, if they value all children to learn better, all children to sort of fulfill their potential and so on. And, and yeah, so... Maybe too much politics here. Oh, no, no it always comes politics. back. <laughs> yes, you, doesn't it? <laughs> you mentioned, uh, so we're talking about this approach to, this better approach to mm -hmm. math education, and you mentioned Finland as mm -hmm. one of the examples who, who is doing, a country who's doing it better. Mm -hmm. um, tell us about Turkey. How do they approach, your native Turkey, how do they approach math education? Um, well, see, I've not been a teacher or a student there for mm -hmm. a long time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so when I was a child, uh, again, I went through my schooling system where I didn't ask the questions mm -hmm. and I was uh, appreciated by my teachers right. for one, for not asking the questions <laughs> because they didn't appreciate necessarily the kids who <laughs> asked those questions. Sure. Uh, but two, also because I, I did my work and, and sometimes I asked other questions which they could answer and they that they were excited by that um but in my middle school high school years i went to a private school so i can't really say that's mm -hmm. that's the norm in turkey and my high school i felt did a good job instilling like mathematical curiosity in us but then mm -hmm. again i became a mathematician so right. <laughs> right maybe and not all my classmates became mathematicians sure. uh, so uh, i don't have a I have a personal perspective. I don't have a systematic perspective. But I do think in Turkey, people think math will, mathy careers will hopefully earn more money for you. Mm -hmm. That is one perspective. Mm -hmm. So in some sense, it's maybe similar more to uh, certain sectors of the American uh, public that also view mathematical paths, uh, career paths mm -hmm. as more lucrative and maybe more... Um, more I mean, better paths to follow, sure. right? So, so that seemed to be kind of um, an underlying assumption in in my education system experience, basically. But um, I don't know. I don't think they necessarily the teachers did anything that much better Different. or something. And mm -hmm. the, we did have huge classes in elementary school, even though I went to a private school later. I mean, the, the elementary school I went to was a public school, and it was. Um, relatively crowded <laughs> uh, so yeah how about um pomona students i mean i i know that they're mm -hmm. a pretty exceptional group mm -hmm. but do they come into math classes with some of those same you know misconceptions about math um so yes yes and no i mean it's it's interesting because uh, the pomona math students the students who take um, math 60 which is linear algebra and above who are already coming in with oh i want i'm good at math and i want to do more math these these students um have um some misconceptions i think or maybe uh, different perceptions or conceptions uh, which are like um well there's always one answer and and mm -hmm. there and if i see a similar problem i can so so there's there's some of that uh, in some students uh, because again they're a product of the standard k12 system here even if they have gone to certain private schools where they have taken the more advanced classes and so on and so forth there's still the focus on single answer and what is the right way to do a 
problem. And uh, but but many of them are excited when when they learn that there might be other ways and maybe others. And 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 then there are some who are not excited. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there are some who have always found math comforting because there was one way to solve problems. Mm-hmm. And yeah. and that that I understand as well because that's kind of how I liked math up. at yeah. the beginning, right? Like mm-hmm. I liked math because it wasn't messy. It was. Like it was hard, but it wasn't messy in the way that like, oh, it depends on whichever assumptions you make, you know, like that. that's engineering that I, I was an engineering student first. And that was hard for me <laughs> because like assumptions, whichever assumptions you make, then the answer changes. right? Mm-hmm. So that was very difficult for me. But math was much easier because like the parameter parameters were given and then you could move on. Uh, but then I found that actually those parameters, you choose them to an extent, right? So mathematics has those ambiguities as well, but um, comes up much later in the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so some of the students like that and some of them don't because that, that makes them lose their foundational belief that, oh, there's objective truth, there's mathematical, you know, like, so so mathematics is truth. And, and so there's some of that. Uh, and, and then there are a few students I meet in, Math one, for instance, uh, the math philosophy and the real world, who uh, have had some negative experiences with mathematics, and uh, being at Pomona, they are intellectually very curious. And and uh, I mean, I think we are privileged here to work with these kinds of students because I I have worked in other contexts where I did teach students who did not like mathematics, did not enjoy mathematics, were afraid of mathematics, and that was that. At Pomona, if a student comes into Math 1, for instance, with some negative uh, feelings or some trepidation, uh, they still have, like, curiosity. Maybe maybe there is something in here. Maybe this time I'll figure something out. Maybe there is some connections I can it. make. Yeah, and, and, and actually the class being a uh, joint class with Pitzer, Half of the classes about like about half the classes Pitzer students, and I think that combination makes the class very interesting. Uh, I I I don't know if I should say this, but I feel like maybe the Pitzer students help Pomona students take leaps of faith more. Hmm. Somehow, that's kind of like. Um, and what do you mean by that? So mm-hmm. I'm I'm feeling like maybe. Um, I'm I'm going to go to that uh, stereotype between the different types of students in these five colleges. So I I, I think that uh, the Pitzer students, uh, I have seen fewer Pitzer students who are afraid somehow <laughs> in in mathematics. Mm-hmm. Like, but but they have so so the Pomona students sometimes they are afraid or they're not afraid. Some of them are not afraid. Some of them are quite brave and comfortable and I say well I've done this other thing very well that doesn't that means that I'm obviously not stupid right because <laughs> there's this this assumption that if you're not good at math you know you are less than uh, smart right but they know they're at Pomona so that can't be true right, right. So, so there's there but but still I think in some Pomona students there's still that mm, you know like Fear maybe adver- risk yeah, aversion yeah mm-hmm. about with respect to mathematical sure. ideas and, and I, I I mean I don't I don't feel like I have I'm not I'm not putting that, I'm not being condescending towards it. I think it's very natural if somebody keeps, if the society tells you you're smart if you do well in math and they don't say anything, right? Like mm-hmm. otherwise. And so, so but, but I feel like uh, the Pitzer students seem to be a little bit more comfortable with having strength areas and not so mm-hmm. much strength areas in other ways. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the, the mixed class feels really, really good. Yeah. The, together, I think it works well. I'm so far, and this is my fourth time teaching it. Yeah, we'll see how it will go this time. Now, how do you go about dispelling those 
misconceptions, or do you? I try, <laughs> but but uh, I am one person, and I'm I'm pretty faulty in many ways. So I try. I mean, I try, but um, I think sometimes uh, when I get too excited, especially, I get too f I go too fast. And and when I'm going too fast on something, some students say, "Okay, there she goes again." That's that's what my math experience has been like, right? Like somebody will go, like they'll say, "Oh no, no, we'll explain," it. and then they'll just like run off, run off with it, and we won't learn and we won't understand, and like I'll have to memorize again. And so that's one thing that I am conscious of that I occasionally do, and I try not to do, but I might be making other mistakes. So I don't know. Um, so, for instance, so I'm now taking notes after every class. Uh, so I, I did that last time I taught this class. So this is the second time I'll be taking my notes. And and I'm looking at, for instance, for the second class, uh, that's going to be tomorrow. Mm -hmm. I wrote in my notes that I think I went too fast. <laughs> so I have to be thoughtful about how not to go too fast tomorrow. We'll, we'll see. I've, I've been playing around with it. And then so. And when you say not go you know going too fast or not going too fast you mean mm -hmm. basically just not waiting for students to to feel that they've mastered exactly, something a little exactly, bit before they move exactly. on to the so, next so thing. i get so excited mm -hmm. <laughs> and and say oh and there's this and then there's this and then like wait a minute like we were trying we were to, still trying yes, to exactly, understand, understand that yeah. and then and and i i i think it's it's again coming back to that asking questions thing right like these students uh, I mean, maybe if I were in their place, I would follow the teacher going that fast because I would not allow myself to ask the questions. Mm -hmm. But they're still asking, <laughs> and and mm -hmm. and in in their minds, they're not asking to me, <laughs> like asking me. Uh, maybe they should, <laughs> but I don't know how to do that. And we'll we'll see in the second day. But uh, I find that uh, eventually they catch up. They 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 feel like catch up on like oh I should ask questions because yeah. that's one way to slow it. <laughs> but also they actually get their answers sometimes. Right? Like they actually get. Get get get, uh, get an answer and 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 but but I mean for for twelve years they have been taught in K twelve that you don't ask these questions right? like because, <laughs> you don't question yes you don't in math class you don't yeah. ask these are questions. rules yeah, yeah. And, and so we'll see how it will go tomorrow yeah as a mathematician and as a parent mm -hmm. what advice would you give parents for their kids not to be turned off to to math before they really know what math is about? Um, so that's a very good question. I'm not sure I am doing it right myself. <laughs> <laughs> because um, I think my my children, uh, my husband is also a mathematician, so we're both mathy people. So we hope that our children would not dislike math. So that's our goal, that they would not dislike math. That's our one bare <laughs> minimum. That's one goal. Exactly. <laughs> that they don't dislike math. But um, we also, I mean, I also believe that um, it would be helpful if they were also um, able to perform well in math class mm -hmm. for various reasons such as you need to do well in school to get into college <laughs> you know, like those kinds of things and so for those those kinds of things we try to like um help them feel comfortable asking questions at home uh, we do talk about mathematical ideas often uh, but I also think one thing that I do do, which probably is not a recommended thing, is to have them do uh, those dreaded worksheets at home. Uh -huh. Like so, I do do that. Mm -hmm. Now that's aside uh, from schoolwork. Well, see, the or... thing is, there's no schoolwork uh -huh. okay. <laughs> because they're going to Sycamore Elementary, which is gotcha. a hippie school where they don't have homework. <laughs> 
which is great, right? Like they don't have homework because research shows that elementary school homework is a waste of time. Mm-hmm. But then when do they learn the automaticity that they need to learn is what I'm yeah. <laughs> worried about. Because, um, what the you know, the memorizing the multiplication table and so on and so forth. Now, let's come back to those kinds of ideas. Sure. Now, everybody has a phone. Everybody has a calculator. Everybody can do those things uh, with the help of machines, right? So, um, but there is something about having certain recall things in, in easy recall, mm-hmm. like in your long-term memory, mm-hmm. that helps you move forward faster with harder problems. Mm-hmm. In that, like, if you actually are thinking about, uh, like, um, a problem which will involve adding five and seven, right? And you're spending mental energy uh, about, like, how do I add five to seven? Mm-hmm. Uh, you're not moving forward with thinking about the rest of the problem. Right. So it's taking mental space. So what I'm trying to say is that I believe that uh, it helps to have those kinds of facts in your long term memory to work out those muscles. Yes. Yes. I mean, it is it is kind of like practice. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I'm not I'm not necessarily very hippy dippy about oh, you don't have to learn any facts. I mean, I think it helps if you want to solve harder problems and if you have some of those facts at your recall then then you can actually build from it build from it because you can spend more mental time and space and energy on the hardness of the problem while like but but also you can say oh this part i can do with the computer or this part i can ask and 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 uh, i guess being able to use tools is is a significantly (laughs) important it's very important skill um but but then also some of the easy, like back of the envelope kind of calculations, it would be nice if you could do some of those calculations. So I want my student, my children to do that, for instance. Uh, so maybe I'm making them hate math. So <laughs> who knows? But I guess the, their father is like taking over the fun math part. <laughs> so, so he's talking to them about like, oh, isn't this amazing? There are these numbers that you can multiply. And, you know, like he just talks to them about fun things and... Uh, so he taught our daughter how to solve the Rubik's cube, oh. and so she was very excited. So, so the thing about the Rubik's cube is that uh, it's this three by three cube, which is a mechanical puzzle, which uh, like it seems like only geniuses or like genius whiz kids can solve. But it's really like there's an algorithm you follow step by step, <laughs> and you just like it's like riding a bicycle once your muscles get used to it you can do it and so on and so forth i mean there are people who do speed cubing which is like mm-hmm. you solve it to like mm-hmm. but then they oil their cube and you know like they they <laughs> memorize different <laughs> algorithms and so on. they're but my, cheating what? No. <laughs> but it's legal within the speed cubing Got community it. but, but <laughs> i'm not a part of that community but but what i know though i do know is that like the uh, my daughter was able to learn the algorithm because she practiced like, that's what she did practice 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 so she learned how to do it and she she was very proud that she could solve it. And yeah. when she does it, other people think that, oh, that's she's really, a genius. genius. And actually, yeah, I guess I am. But like we're saying, <laughs> no, you're not. You practice, remember? <laughs> and, and so we're also trying to say like practice is how you learn things. But um, it's yeah. an outcome of learning. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, learning comes from that, right? Learn, yeah. That's one of those parenting rules. You don't you don't <laughs> praise kids for doing something. You praise them for the hard work. They yes, put we're in. supposed to do that. right? Like that's, <laughs> yeah. the, that's the new thing. So um, uh, it's 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 a good thing, though. Right? I mean, because uh, I also see the other and if you just say, oh, that's so smart or that's uh, how, how, how great you were able to do this, then they don't try the next step. That's the thing, right? Because then mm-hmm. they will fail, right? They They're don't content. want to do that. Yeah. Right. So 
uh, if you push for the uh, practice is good and like you can how hard you have worked is good. Uh, and I'm also trying like my do my son already six years old. He knows this phrase. I like mistakes are a part of learning. <laughs> but but I'm, I don't know if they think if they believe it. I don't know. But he can he can he can recite it. <laughs> uh -huh. mm -hmm. But yeah, at least uh, it's part of his uh, <laughs> memory of me. <laughs> right. Well, so far we've avoided actual math okay. <laughs> but uh because and out of, out of so some compassion for our <laughs> listeners who 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 aren't necessarily mathematicians and i know your physicists. that your physicists, <laughs> yeah. um your research area is um listed in your cv as algebraic <laughs> objects of representation theory mm -hmm. which doesn't tell me a lot okay. unfortunately <laughs> Um, can you explain that to me the way you would explain it to your grandmother? Who's not a physicist. And with <laughs> my grandmother, who's not the physicist. <laughs> yes, I'm very, very privileged in that way as well. My, my paternal grandmother was a PhD physicist. She, she was a uh, professor of physics for as long as I knew her. And then she retired. So your other grandmother. My other grandmother. <laughs> uh, I can explain it to her. Let's see. So I, I think the central ideas of uh, those objects, the central idea is symmetry, again. And symmetry is... Um, so they teach symmetry to my kids in my kids' math book as, like, think about the letter, capital letter A. You can fold it in half and then, like, the two sides uh, coincide with one another. So that's a symmetry, right? So that's a symmetric object. Now, there are many other symmetries, but that's, like, that's what's called a bilateral symmetry. It's a, like, two-sided symmetry. Now, then there are other things that are symmetric. For instance, um, uh, a pentagon, uh, uh, an object with five equal si five sides. If it's equal sides, you can rotate it, right? Like you can rotate it and put it on top of each other, on top of itself, and you have the same thing. So it has rotational symmetry. Uh, and then there are other types of symmetries. But um, if you don't have a pentagon, but if you have a circle, right? The circle you can rotate <laughs> as much or as little as you want. Right? So the symmetries of the pentagon are discrete, which means like they're finitely many and one at a time, but the circle are continuous symmetries, right? So the mathematical objects that uh, represent these uh, symmetries or symmetry transformations, these moves that you, you can make to objects with symmetries are called groups. Uh, these are what are called groups. And mm -hmm. Part of algebra studies that, uh, and uh, the continuous symmetry groups are called Lie groups, and that's kind of what I have worked with most of my uh, mathematical career. Um, so these are objects that uh, describe symmetries of not necessarily physical objects, but also physical theories. Uh, so the way you might think about it is, um, for instance, if if you have taken any physics class at some point, you might have talked about a point charge uh, or maybe a point mass or something where this is not a real object. It's a theoretical construct, but it says that in space, all empty, there's just one point which has mass or which has charge or something like that. And then if there's nothing else in that space, uh, and if you add yourself to the picture or some other object to the picture, uh, then what matters is your distance to this point mm -hmm. mass or point thing. So it, it doesn't matter if you were at one point, uh, a different, uh, like like five meters from it on one side, or you could be all around it in a sphere. 
surface, right? Like you don't have to be in one point, but you could be on a sphere. So that says that uh, the theories about a point charge or point mass will be uh, rotationally symmetric, uh, described by the rotations of the sphere. So then you will connect to uh, physical theories that describe certain properties of our universe, uh, we think about it, <laughs> uh, uh, and then connecting them to certain abstract algebraic objects. So that's kind of the co connection between uh, physics and uh, group theory. Mm. And the continuous symmetries give you the Lie algebras. And I think here is, I stop with my grandma. <laughs> <laughs> and and you stop with me too. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I followed you though. That okay, was good. cool, cool. <laughs> <laughs> He's winking now. He's <laughs> like, sure. <laughs> well, it's about symmetries and rotations. Yeah. And yeah. So it's, it's kind of, okay, it's fun. <laughs> yeah, you did a good job explaining it. Okay. <laughs> you did. Absolutely. Uh, you've also been a Wikipedia fellow. Oh, yes. Why um, Why your interest in Wikipedia and what was your role? Uh, so, so that was through the Association for Women in Mathematics. Uh, this is one of the uh, professional uh, organizations of mathematicians, mainly centered in North America, but it's an international organization. Most members are American, I think, US-based. Um, so Wikipedia had a um, sort of a project. So most people who are working with uh, online things are men. <laughs> It seems like, and many of the edit most of the editors of Wikipedia are men, and so this has come to the notice of uh, many people, including Wikipedia people themselves, and they wanted to have um, a way of introducing more female and other underrepresented uh, editors mm -hmm. uh, to their to their cohort to to their to their group of uh, editing, right? So, um, so they organized these uh, cohort programs where uh, these uh, professional associations across uh, the disciplines would select a few fellows and the Wikipedia, actually it's Wiki Education, it's not Wikipedia exactly, but a uh, non-profit organization affiliated with Wiki, Wiki, Wikipedia. Uh, they trained us, uh, they trained uh, us to sort of uh, edit Wikipedia in, in areas that were within our expertise, right? Mm -hmm. And and so that would they thought that that would make us feel more comfortable, I think, because like uh, some people are comfortable going ahead and changing things without necessarily being an expert on things. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think uh, a lot of times people who have been uh, underrepresented in their area of expertise are a little bit more cautious mm -hmm. uh, about jumping in and like, saying, I know, I know, no, this is wrong, this is right. You know, like we, we don't necessarily do that as much, yeah. I think. And so this was a way of like channeling in more like new editors of with new voices. And and so I, I wanted to do it because I use Wikipedia mm -hmm. all the time. Mm -hmm. And I know that like we're not supposed to tell students when you're writing a paper, don't like don't use Wikipedia as a resource. But it's always the best place, I think, for most things to, to start. start. And and in mathematics, even I think it's most areas of mathematics, it's a good place to end. <laughs> it's so extensive. Like mathematical Wikipedia is very extensive mm. in most areas that I'm uh, mm -hmm. working in. Um, because there are mathematicians who took it upon themselves to like mm. sort of uh, make sure that the math is right. <laughs> so uh -huh. a lot of math on Wikipedia is right. Uh, but uh, in terms of uh, representation, in terms of who, what kinds of mathematicians are 
uh, like uh, no represented just uh, even in the content of Wikipedia. Mm -hmm. It is uh, pretty lopsided, mm -hmm. and so. Uh, I think AWM's main mission was not just to change the math content because, as I have said, math content is pretty good in, in comparison to... I mean, some math areas, apparently some computational math areas are not very, very good. So there were some computational math uh, people in the cohort who were focusing on the math content. But many of us were interested in the people of mathematics, trying to bring in uh, content about women mathematicians, uh, mathematicians of color and... Uh, mathematicians living today <laughs> and mm -hmm. and so we we sort of uh, got in that way I, I use wikipedia all the time and i thought i'd like to do some editing and i'm not going to do it if somebody doesn't teach me how to do this mm -hmm. <laughs> so for mm -hmm. me this was a great way to sort of uh, learn about how to use wikipedia uh, effectively and actually maybe contribute a little bit so i i, I edited a few pages um I haven't done as much as some of the other fellows, but I have done some and I, I still have my password and I, I, I do occasionally go in and change a few things if I see something wrong, which I which is, you know, that uh, XKCD cartoon. Oh, someone on the internet is wrong. <laughs> so you can see that on Wikipedia and I have a password now I can go in. So it's kind of nice. Um, uh, yeah, so it's it's been an interesting experience and I think it was an empowering one because now I, I know I can do it. It's, it's the, the barrier is not there anymore. Right. Well, on that note, we're going to wrap okay. this up. Sorry, I talked uh, too no, much. <laughs> not, not at all. all. This is great. I, um, our thanks to mathematics professor Gizem uh, Karali for talking with us about the humanistic side of mathematics. Um, thanks, Gizem. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Now you'll have to edit and crop a lot of it, right? <laughs> <laughs> and to all who stuck with us this far, thanks for listening to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. Until next time.